Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Did you know that one of the most courageous people in the Bible never said a recorded word? So Jesus had this stepdad, this guy named Joseph, most of you have heard of him, and he's mentioned in all four accounts of Jesus' life, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's talked about in all of them, but none of them record him ever speaking. And if the old cliche is true that actions speak louder than words, then Joseph's life speaks volumes. He was put into a no-win situation that would have paralyzed most of us, most people, with fear, but he doesn't complain, he doesn't question, he just steps out in faith and he follows God. Joseph has this amazing story. I can't wait to open it up and look at it with you all this morning. It's what we're gonna be focusing on in week two of this series we've been in called Fear Not. Now this series was really born out of the fact that the most repeated command in the Bible, the one that spans across both testaments, across time and place and context, is simply do not be afraid. I first came across this fact while reading a book by one of my favorite authors, a guy named Donald Miller. He says it like this, the most often repeated commandment in the Bible is do not fear. It's in there over 200 times, and that means a couple of things if you think about it. It means that we are going to be afraid, that's number one. And number two, it means that we shouldn't let fear boss us around. Before I realized we were supposed to fight fear, I thought of fear as this subtle suggestion in our subconscious designed to keep us safe, or more important, to keep us from getting humiliated. And I guess it does serve that purpose. But fear isn't only a guide to keep us safe. It's also a manipulative emotion that can trick us into living a boring life. I love how he explains the the frequency of this command of this use of fear not in the Bible by breaking it down into those two truths. Number one, we are going to be afraid. And number two, we shouldn't let fear boss us around. It's like, a sec- like I said a second ago, this morning we're going to continue in this fear not series by looking at the story of Joseph, the adoptive father or the stepfather of Jesus Christ. Now Joseph was from a small town called Nazareth a place in Israel that most scholars believe had a population of no more than 500 people during Joseph's time. He was a carpenter by trade, but that wouldn't have meant the same thing in the first century as it does today in the 21st century. The word that we have that is translated carpenter can mean a variety of things, but it's most likely that Joseph was a a laborer of sorts, a builder, a blue-collar guy who, like many of us, probably lived paycheck to paycheck, project to project. Now, we we can know this for a few different reasons. The first one is this. According to Jewish law, every firstborn male was brought to the temple and dedicated to God. It was just part of what they did. So you you had a little boy, you took him to the temple, you made this pilgrimage, no matter where you lived, how far away, you made the pilgrimage to the temple and you dedicated him to God. It's similar to child baptism or christening or, or what we do here at Restore called kid dedication. 
And each family would also bring two animals to sacrifice during this ceremony. The first one was a lamb, and it was called a burnt offering. And then the second one was either a pigeon or a dove, a bird, and that was called a sin offering. So they brought those two things, a lamb and a bird, to make offerings when they uh, dedicated their child to God. But for families that couldn't afford a lamb, there was a special provision made. It's recorded in Leviticus chapter 12 in the law. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So if you couldn't do a lamb and a bird, basically you could bring two birds and that would be okay. And we know that when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to be dedicated to the temple, the Bible tells us that they brought two birds as a sacrifice, meaning they couldn't afford a lamb. Now I'm telling you, they must have like really not been able to afford a lamb because it was God as a child, right? They were dedicating God to God. They were bringing him into the temple. So I'm sure they would have scratched together anything that they could. They would have borrowed money. If, if they had it, they would have gotten a lamb, but they just, they couldn't get it. So they brought two birds. That's the first reason we know. This is the second reason we know that when Jesus left his home to go out and begin his ministry, he didn't have any personal wealth or family money. He was supported financially by his friends. In fact, our main character from last week, Mary Magdalene, was one of these financial supporters of Jesus. And then lastly, we, we actually only know that Jesus was, or excuse me, Joseph was a carpenter because it is said about Jesus in this derogatory way. So Jesus is starting his ministry. He's traveling around. He's teaching. He's serving people when he decides to return to his hometown of Nazareth, his father's town, and teach in the synagogue there. Here's the story. Matthew 13, coming to his hometown, he began to teach the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? They're saying, who does this Jesus think he is, performing miracles and teaching with wisdom? Wasn't this guy's dad just a laborer? Wasn't he just a carpenter? Wasn't his family poor? They couldn't even afford a lamb when they took him to the temple, and now he's back in the synagogues teaching us about God, this is just the carpenter's son. So this is Joseph. This is the, the picture we have of him, living in his small hometown, working a blue-collar job, and living paycheck to paycheck. And I hope it goes without saying that, that these are neither good nor bad characteristics. It's simply who Joseph was. And it's the picture that we need to have of him as we approach this climactic event in his life. This, this moment in time where he is put in a seemingly impossible situation and he's presented with a choice. Number one, he can give in to fear. Or number two, he can trust God and overcome fear. We find this story in the first chapter of the first book in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible or your phone, you'd like to look at it with us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 for the rest of our time together. Matthew chapter 1. It starts in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to pause here and to explain some of these terms and some cultural context behind them. So first, the, the pledge to be married part is really better translated betrothed to be married. In our language and context, a pledge implies that you don't really have any legal obligation to follow through, right? I grew up in a, a nonprofit family. My, my dad um, ran a nonprofit for, for years. He started when I was born and he, and he still works there to this day. He was the leader and he was the chief fundraiser. My mom actually worked there too. And one of the biggest things that they did every year was raise money around this banquet. 
So they would have this huge banquet, and, and they would present all of the things that kind of God was doing in this nonprofit and, and all the success stories. And at the end, they would, they would ask for financial support. But obviously, a lot of people, they're not carrying, like, checks and cash and stuff like that. So they would ask for pledges, right? And they would fill out a card, and they would say, I pledge to give this. And I remember that for months after the banquet each year, my parents and their staff would be contacting people who pledged to see if they were really going to give. And for a variety of reasons, some legitimate and some not so much, some people, they, they just didn't fulfill their pledges. And do you know what my parents did? Called the police. They had all of them arrested. For not, no, like you can't do that, right? They just filled out a card and they said, I pledge to do this, but you can't help, right? You, you, don't, you don't know. They said, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope there's some time in the future that you can fulfill this pledge. There's no legal recourse in our day and age for someone backing out of a pledge. This is true for an engagement, too. If you're engaged to be married and you step away, you break it off before the wedding, there's no legal issues at all. You don't have to fill out any paperwork. You don't have to do anything. It's just a pledge. It's not a legal agreement yet. So when we read this, we often think of Joseph and Mary as engaged, right? That makes sense in our context, pledged to be married, similar to our engagements today. But, y'all, that's not the case at all. That's not what was actually happening. Betrothal was a really big deal in the first century. See, when people got married in the first century, there were two parts. Number one, there was this betrothal ceremony. So you have to remember that marriage at this point in time and culture was an agreement between two men. Right? The, 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 the bride had little to nothing to do with the actual agreement part of the wedding. It's a really sad patriarchal culture. So either the, the two fathers of the bride and the groom or the father of the bride and the groom, they would get together and they would talk about, they would negotiate the terms that the marriage would be based on, including any money and possessions, a dowry that would be exchanged, and then they would schedule this betrothal ceremony. And the betrothal ceremony was basically when the goods were exchanged, the legal agreement was made right, and, and they signed it. I mean, it was like a, a legal ceremony. Everything was done. And then there was this period of time, and then there was a religious ceremony. This is what we're more familiar with, more like a wedding. And it was this short religious gathering that was followed by usually days of partying. And it also included, at the end of that religious ceremony, the consummation of the marriage between the two spouses. If you don't know what consummation means, you Google it later on. Scholar Craig Bloomberg describes the two ceremonies in the betrothal time like this. He says, engagement in ancient Judaism was legally binding and required divorce if it were to be broken. But sexual relations and living together under one roof were not permitted until after the marriage ceremony. So do you you following with me? There was the betrothal ceremony. That was the legal part. They were betrothed to be married. Everything was exchanged. The papers were signed. It was legally binding. But there was this time period in which there was no sexual relations. You didn't live together. Nothing happened. And then you came to the religious ceremony. There was a religious ceremony followed by days of partying and, and the consummation of the marriage. Now, it's really important, during the period of time between the betrothal ceremony and the religious ceremony, the young wife was given a chance to spend a few more weeks or even months with her family and friends before she left everything she'd ever known to go be with this guy that she probably hardly knew for the rest of her life. Now, one of the main reasons this was important is because girls were married so young in this culture, mostly between 12 and 14 years of age. So the bride would have this time to be with family and friends. And during this time, they would actually often travel around to see family who lived out of town, people they would probably lose contact with after they got married. This is exactly what Mary did. 
We know that at the time, Mary was living in Nazareth and, and betrothed to Joseph when she leaves and she goes to visit her uh, cousin named Elizabeth. And so right before that happens, she's actually visited. If you remember the story that comes around every Christmas, Mary is visited by this angel telling her that even though she's a virgin, she is pregnant with God in the flesh who will be called Jesus. And she believes the angel, right? She, she says, I'll, I'll, I'll obey. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And after that happens, she packs everything, and she's got this trip scheduled, and she goes, and she spends time in Judea with her relative, her cousin named Elizabeth. And when she gets back from the trip, Joseph sees that she's pregnant, okay? And he would have naturally assumed that during her trip to Judea, she'd had an affair with someone. She'd gotten pregnant with their child. So at this point, Joseph has a decision to make. Verse 19 records it. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Again, this verse is packed with some vitally important things that really, I think, bring this story to life. The first thing to point out is that it says, quote, because Joseph is faithful to the law, he, he has to divorce her. The Jewish law required husbands to divorce unfaithful wives, especially if it happened during the betrothal time. As a law-abiding Jewish man, Joseph knew he should divorce Mary, and typically, almost always, this was done very publicly. But like the verse says, Joseph didn't want to expose her to, quote, public disgrace. And that leads us to the second really important part of this verse. The term public disgrace, I think, again, for us, in our context, is a little bit misleading. When we hear Joseph didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he decided to divorce her quietly, we think of Joseph just not making a big spectacle about their breakup, right? No long Facebook posts calling her slang names for a prostitute or, you know, no exposing her in a group text with all their friends, right? No calling her parents and, and yelling at them. But that's not at all what public disgrace means in this sense. See, Joseph had every legal and cultural right to accuse Mary publicly of adultery. Here's actually what the Jewish law said from Deuteronomy 22. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, quote, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. That's heavy, right? In case you didn't catch all that, basically after a groom consummated the marriage with his new wife, he could just accuse her of not being a virgin, of being unsatisfactory to him. Then there would have been this trial of sorts in front of the town elders to prove her virginity. If the elders decided that there wasn't enough proof that she was a virgin, they would stone her to death. How well do you think visibly pregnant Mary would have done in this little trial? Not great. Not great. They were trying to prove she was a virgin and she was visibly with child. She would have been immediately stoned to death. And Joseph knows that. And he loves Mary. And even though she has seemingly been unfaithful to him, he loves her. So now he's balancing. 
He's balancing this legal requirement of divorce with his love for Mary. So he decides to do the less common thing, which is to divorce her quietly. Now, this didn't just spare Mary some embarrassment. It literally saved her life. It literally saved her baby's life. And that's what Joseph decides to do. So he decides to divorce her quietly. But then something happens. Something crazy, something <laughs> that had never happened to Joseph before. And, and this is the point in the story where we come to this apex event in Joseph's life. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, after he had decided to divorce her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. There it is. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So did you notice there was one of those 200 plus times in scripture where that command goes out, do not be afraid. And again, so much is packed into these couple of verses. Joseph has so many valid reasons to be afraid here. No wonder the first thing the angel says is, it's okay, don't be afraid. Because if, if he does what God is asking him to do, if Joseph takes a step of faith, if he trusts God to overcome fear, he's opening himself up to certain humiliation. He's marrying a girl who is pregnant with a child who is not his. In the honor and shame culture that existed in the first century, this would have brought, brought tremendous shame on Joseph and on his family. He would have been ridiculed, possibly kicked out of his town, out of his family home. It also means waiting to consummate his marriage until after his child is born. This would have made for just a really weird wedding night, just to say the least. It also means being God's dad. I just want like sit with that for a second. This child Mary is carrying is said to have two names, right? They're supposed to call him Jesus, which means the God who saves or God saves. But they're also going to call him Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us. That's his name, God with us. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with skin on. And Joseph is being asked to be his dad. How scary is that? But there's something else here at play too. Overcoming fear and trusting God for Joseph didn't just mean facing humiliation. It didn't just mean raising a child that wasn't biologically his. It didn't just mean waiting to consummate his marriage with his wife until after Jesus was born. It didn't just mean being God's dad. All of that was scary enough, but it gets even scarier and even harder for Joseph. Because trusting God and overcoming fear in this moment meant breaking the law. So he was being asked to do. He was being asked to break the law. And remember, Joseph is this law-abiding man. It's super important to him. The Jewish law has been something he's devoted his entire life to keeping. And it's not just important to him. It has been important to his family for generations. Did you notice what the angel called him? Joseph, son of David. Matthew, the author here, is making the case that Joseph is a direct descendant of King David. In fact, that's how the Matthew's account of Jesus' life begins. We started in Matthew 1.18. Well, the first 17 verses 
are basically just a genealogy of Jesus and Joseph tracing all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rahab, Ruth, David, Solomon, and many other patriarchs and matriarchs of the Jewish people and faith. Now this angel of God is asking Joseph to depart from the Jewish law, the one handed down by his ancestors to him from generation to generation. This is God asking Joseph to break God's law. Can you imagine how conflicted he is, how how scared he is? In this moment, Joseph is, is presented with this choice. It's the same choice that Mary Magdalene faced when we talked about her last week, and it's the same choice that you and I face all the time. He can give in to fear. He can can get scared. He can be afraid, and he can just say, ah, I don't want to do this. Or he can trust God. He can take a step of faith, and he can overcome fear. Here's what Joseph does, verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph wakes up from his dream, gets out of bed, and chooses to trust God in the midst of the scariest situation of his life. I love how beautifully mundane Joseph's story of faith is here. He wakes up, he gets out of bed, And he just starts putting one foot in front of the other by faith. He doesn't say anything. We don't have any recorded words. He doesn't ask a bunch of questions. He he literally wakes up from the dream where the angel says, I know this is different than everything you've ever known. I know this goes against everything you've ever been told, but I want you to take Mary home as your wife. I want you to trust that the baby inside of her is God in the flesh. And I want you to name him Jesus, and I want you to raise him right. And he wakes up. And he gets out of bed, and he steps out in faith. This is what choosing not to let fear boss us around looks like for so many of us. It's it's not a big scene. It's not some grand display. It's just taking a step, and then taking another one, and then taking one more. I was listening to a podcast this week. It's all about battling fear and, and anxiety and depression. And the host was, was sharing about this very thing, about just taking small steps every day. He talked about it in regard to exercise. He said he would wake up each day and he would say to himself, well, I'm just going to put on my shorts today. If I don't want to keep going, if I don't want to get out of bed and go downstairs, well, what, I'm just going to put on my shorts. And then he would say, well, I'm, I got my shorts on. I'm just going to put on my shoes. Okay, I've... I've got my shoes on. I'm just going to go downstairs. If I get downstairs and I don't want to do it, I'll, I'll go back up. But I'm, I'm just going to go downstairs. Then he would say, I'll, I'll just walk for, for 10 minutes today. I'll just put on two songs, five minutes apiece, and I'll just walk until they're over. And then after that second song was over, he would say, okay, maybe I can do one more song. And then day after day, after a lot of trial and error, after, after making progress and then taking steps back, he added a song and added a song and added a song and put on his shorts and walked downstairs until he was walking every day for an hour, every morning. He talked about it when he was trying to quit smoking cigarettes. He talked about how some people can just quit cold turkey, but he decided to just smoke one less cigarette a day. He said he would wake up and he would look at his pack and he would have 10 cigarettes left in his pack. 
and he would say, I would normally smoke all 10 of these this morning, but I'm just going to smoke nine this morning. And the next day, he's just going to smoke eight, and then seven, and then maybe eight or nine again, and then back to eight and seven and six, until pretty soon he was throwing his last pack away. There were times when he would stop and he would start again, both with exercise and with not smoking, but he just kept putting one foot in front of the other. One of the scariest things that I have ever done is be a part of starting this church. We just celebrated three years back in February, and I remember the first summer that we were here, me and, and my wife, and we, our, our four-and-a-half-year-old was six months old at the time, and, and Matt and Emily Gonzalez, we moved here, and that first summer, we... We needed to do so many things. We needed to, to raise enough money to buy all the startup equipment that we needed. We needed to find a place to meet. We needed to find people who wanted to be a part of this thing and, and like a million other things. And every day I would wake up and I would look at my to-do list and I would think, I can't accomplish any of this today. I can't. I can't raise all the money that we need. I can't find a church full of people today. I can't find a place to meet today, but after I would wallow in self-pity for a while, God would gently, gently whisper in my ear, no, you can't, but you can take one step today. You can make one phone call. You can have one coffee meeting. You can take one step. And I don't know what your scary situation is right now. I don't know what you're facing. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's just one of those things where it's just not going the way that you thought it was going to go. It's not providing you enough money. It's not providing you fulfillment. But you feel like you're supposed to be there. You don't have anything else to do. Maybe it's just one step, just waking up each morning and saying, I'm just going to go to work today. I'm just going to try it. I'm just going to take a step. Maybe it's school. I know a lot of our students are in finals right now, right? I mean, you're studying, you're, you're working hard. I know that every night you open up your books and you think, I got to master all of this material. But, but that's not how it works. It's just committing to study for 10 more minutes, and maybe 20 more minutes. It's committing to just opening the book one more time, to, to waking up, to go into the test. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you've hit a, a rough spot and you don't know what the future holds and, and you don't know how to do it all, but you know that you were just being asked to take one step, make one phone call, return one text message. I know for me, a lot of times it's, it's raising kids. Man, I don't know what I'm doing. My son was, I'm going to cry about it. He was, he was really, he was like scared last night, you know, going to bed. And I'd had this really long day. I'd, I'd done a, a wedding rehearsal and, and then wedding in Johnson City, and I'd been driving all day, and I had to finish what I was doing for this morning. And, and he was scared, and I was just like, go to bed. Go to bed. I, I don't want to stay up with you anymore. I need to work. Just please go to bed. And he didn't need me to, like, solve all of his fears. He needed me to just go in there and sit with him for a second, you know, just tell him that I love him, tell him that I'm there. Just one step. Maybe you're caring for a loved one who's battling something, sickness, disease. Maybe you're walking through something yourself right now. 
and you want to wake up and you want to be done with it tomorrow. And maybe that's going to happen, but, but most likely it's not. Most likely you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're just going to have to take one more step, battle one more time, go to one more treatment, make one more meal, take a step. Maybe it's grieving. Maybe you've lost something, you've lost someone, and it's been like really hard. And in every movie you've ever seen, there's just this like one big grand scene where, where somebody comes over to your house and they say something and it just fixes everything. And you've never experienced that. It's never worked like that. And you want it to, but it just doesn't. Maybe it's just taken one step. Just getting out of bed in the morning. Just eating some breakfast. Just going to your job or going to school. Putting one foot in front of the other and trusting that God is big enough to take care of this. That it's going to take time. But that he's got you. Wherever you are right now, wherever God has you, chances are he isn't calling you to change your life or change the world in one day. He's just asking you to take a step. Just like Joseph, wake up, get out of bed, be faithful, take a step. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. I don't have a bunch of profound words or wisdom for you. Just step out in faith and trust him. Just take one step and then take another and another and another. Because I'm going to tell you what those 200 plus people in the Bible were told. Don't be afraid. God's got this. He's holding you like we just sang. He is bigger than all our fears. He's got this. Just take a step, okay? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Joseph's remarkably unremarkable story of faith. His, his mundanely beautiful battling against fear. Thank you that even when he was, he was in the scariest situation of his life, even when he was going through things that most of us cannot understand or fathom, being asked to do something that's different than everything he's ever known, than everything he's ever been told, God, he was faithful and he, he showed us how. It wasn't with a grand gesture. It wasn't with this big scene. It was just with a step of faith. Waking up, getting out of bed, taking a step. God, that is Joseph's story, but we know, we know that for so many of us, you're asking that to be our story. For us to just wake up, get out of bed each morning, and take a step of faith, and then another one, and then another one. But we know that we can't do that on our own, God. We don't have the power to do that. So we, we ask for your power, for your hope, for your peace, for your love. Overflow it in our lives, God. Every time we're scared, whisper in our ear that most often repeated command in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, my son. Don't be afraid, my daughter. Trust me. Take a step. 
we trust you and we want to take a step.